Hello and welcome to episode 236 of the Rollo and Slappy Show. Today is January 31st, 2021. I am Rollo McFlugel and with me is my co-host, Slappy Jones. Show notes page for this episode will be mcflugel.com slash 236, where you'll be able to find links to ways to check out our guest as well as uh, checking out some of the things we uh, we talk about in the episode. Um, and also our sponsor, libertymugs.com. Go check that out. Um, one piece of business before we roll into this episode. I believe that last week I forgot to mention tractors in the episode. And Did uh, you really? Did I not call you out on that? How did no, I miss that? No one called me out on it unless I... You now know. you had to because I would have because as soon as as soon as you say it it checks off my brain and uh, well, you're assuming your own perfection. I because I am perfect. Wow. Well. But uh, yeah, I mean, you all missed because the uh, the bounty on that was one whole Bitcoin. So too bad, sure. everybody. Yeah, unless, unless unless I'm wrong, and I did say it, in which case that means you owe me a Bitcoin. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, we uh we, we had uh three great guests on one guy uh Cal that I never heard of before until this week but he was great uh, on Twitter yeah had some great insight on this uh, whole GameStop and uh, Robin Hood Citadel you, you know whatever's going on there's been a lot of conversation on Twitter among the libertarian circles about how to make sense of all this a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of bombs being thrown in a lot of directions, and I, I we, from a, we, from an ignorant standpoint, on a, most of the time. I mean, this yeah. is a really complicated system, and uh, and Cal has a really good handle on it. Yeah, so we brought on Cal along with J.W. Weatherman and uh, Stephen Kinsella to kind of unpack this and and figure out what's going on, and and you know the answers may surprise you a little bit. Uh, that was a really interesting episode, really interesting conversation, and. I uh, really appreciate those guys coming on and talking. Yeah, it was really cool. And it was, it was, you know, I'll have to do, do a little bit of my uh, butt kissing because uh, talking to Stefan Kinsella was really cool. Um, Rollo, you recommended that book uh, against intellectual property to me. I don't know how long ago that was. It was a long time ago, but that was one that, uh, wow, really like changed the way I think about a lot of things. So it was really cool to have him on the show. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So, uh, no one wants to hear us talk, so. No, let's get into it. All right, so hey guys, thanks, and welcome to the show. Uh, Silent Cal, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, we saw some interesting tweets you had on Twitter and wanted to get you on to talk about this uh, this GameStop. So if you could just give us like uh, two minutes about yourself and uh, we'll go from there. Sure, absolutely. So um, thanks for having me on. First time doing a podcast of any sort, but um, I wrote an explainer on Twitter for kind of trying to help people understand the Robin Hood situation and maybe some of the plumbing that exists in the equity market microstructure. Um, about myself, finance professional, worked in finance for 20 years, um, both on the sell side and the buy side. I mean, I've traded a lot of equities, but uh, not primarily an equity trader, not an equity long short fund. Um, I've got a lot of friends in equity long short funds at hedge funds, um, as well as people that worked at some of the better early high-frequency shops, as well as sort of their own independent shops. So pretty familiar with high-frequency trading and, and some of the order handling rules and regulatory bits. So 
um, more a credit guy. So my you know my career has been focused in the credit markets and bankruptcy and, and some of the uh, the stuff that happened around the financial crisis. So much more of an expert in the credit market, but certainly know the the equity microstructure. And I think that was helpful to people when they kind of they saw some wild stuff last week. I mean, this is one like Volkswagen or. Um, or Enron or LTCM. This is something that we'll be talking about 20 years from now, I think, in terms of the size of this move. So um, happy to try to kind of explain it to people and and uh, enjoyed uh, somebody actually listening to me on Twitter for the first time. <laughs> well, thanks thanks for joining us. Uh, our, our second guest, well, second guest is Stefan Kinsella, author of Against Intellectual Property. I'm pretty sure everyone listening to our show is at least familiar with Stefan, and if not, uh, Google his name and find out. But welcome to the Rowell and Slappy Show, Stefan. Hey, guys. Thanks. Glad to be here. And our third guest is also a return guest, J.W. Weatherman. Uh, Want to give a quick second on yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, let's see. Uh, so right now I, I do mostly uh, posting on Twitter, um, but I actually uh, um, also am a founder in a software startup um in relation to like payments and baking and that sort of that sort of world um i've done a couple startups and sold them and uh that's basically been my career since i stopped focusing on network security exclusively maybe maybe six years ago um and before that i was uh working at you know fortune 50 companies uh working on software security and, and figuring out network security those sort of things so i, I definitely have a uh, not a ton of knowledge in the legal space or in the finance space um outside of like small startups um but as far as software goes i think uh, i think i'll be able to contribute a bit there great well thank you thank you all for joining us so it was a wild week last week with what was it, Rallo? GameStop and AMC and Robinhood and lots of all the intelligent, smart, well-reasoned people were out on Twitter talking about it. But we did find three people who seemed to be uh, seemed to have a, some good takes, and that's why we wanted to bring all three of you on the show. So thanks again for joining us. But um, Rallo, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with what is a short to begin with? <laughs> you know, I think everyone thinks uh, when you short something, it means you want the company to bankrupt or you're going to bankrupt the company or you're automatically going to make money on it or you know yeah. i don't know yeah there's there's so much to unpack here maybe maybe we can start with cal to uh kind of the basics of 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 the kinetics of what was going on uh with this situation and and maybe a little bit of what happened and then we can roll into more of the uh kind of the what a libertarian maybe should uh how they should look at something like this and, and start to unpack yeah. it. And by the way, the, the style of our podcast to our three guests is we just have a conversation. So feel free to jump in, um, just let it go and we'll, we'll take it where it goes. So Cal, would you mind explaining what a short is? Yeah. I mean, very, very briefly, you know, companies issue stock, you have stockholders that own stock. Um, if you think a stock price is going to go down, if all you can do is own a stock, then there's no way to profit or, or be involved if you think a stock price is going to happen. You can wait, not buy it. Um, you can tell your friends that they should sell it if they own it. But uh, shorting a stock is actually a way to try to profit by a potential decline in a share price. And what you do is you go to somebody who owns the stock and you say, can I have that for you know a day or a month or a year? And they lend it to you. You owe it back to them. Um, when they give it to you, they give up their voting rights in it. So you've got a real share with voting rights. You go sell it to somebody and they own it. 
And then later when the stock price falls, you go buy a share, give it back to the guy you borrowed it from, and you made money if it fell. If it didn't fall and it went up, then you lose money. And so at a very basic level, that's what it is. And then there's this whole machinery and, and regulated system around actually having that work in an orderly way and making sure that um, people get their shares back. And if prices move, you don't have you know, really large credit risk building up in the system. But at a basic level, that's what shorting is. It's somebody borrowing a stock, selling it with the intent to try to purchase it back later, they hope at a lower price in order to make a profit. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty straightforward. Um, but, you know, there, there's, I actually put a tweet out the other day. It's like, I wonder how many people even knew what shorting was before last week. And a lot of people were actually pretty honest and said, yeah, I really had no idea. So something something that might be simple to some people, it's, uh, it's worth the explanation. So... Uh, I guess, Cal, we'll, we'll go right back to you again, or if anyone else wants to jump in with their takes. But, but you know, what in the world happened with uh, with GameStop and and uh, those Wall Street bet guys, and then how everyone's it's, it's not just that they Wall Street bets made a made good uh, made a good investment and went out, but now everyone's flipping out and and taking a lot of moral stances on what's going on and calling some people criminals and, and everything else. And I'm actually not so certain I understand um, if, yeah, so if, if someone's a criminal briefly, or not. So just before, maybe right before we get into kind of this particular story, I do think shorting is interesting from a libertarian perspective for, for a variety of reasons. One, one of which, just quickly, is you know, a lot of people are familiar with Rothbard's description of fractional reserve banking as a sort of counterfeiting of, of money, right? And there's definitely people who think of shorting in the same way and would say that shorting is a type of counterfeiting of shares and making up fake shares and selling them. And I don't have that position. I don't think shorting is that, but there are some interesting parallels there. Um, and there might be some people who have, you know, just a, not only an aversion, but, but maybe even some, you know, uh, logical arguments why they think shorting is wrong or shouldn't be allowed or is fake. It's like selling fake shares. So you'll hear that. I, I don't think that's how I view it. I kind of view it as like live and let live. When you borrowed some shares and sold them, you're not defrauding anybody. You're just betting. I, I saw. I had some people. This is Kinsella. I had some uh, some friends on Twitter saying that uh, naked shorting is some kind of unlibertarian crime. Uh, I don't really see fundamentally there's a difference between naked shorting and uh, regular shorting. In both cases, you basically the seller or the lender of the share knows you're going to sell it, right? Or in the first case, the seller knows you're going to sell it, and so then you just have a contractual obligation to give him the share or the value of it back at the end, right? So he's taking a credit, kind of a credit risk. So it's just a contract. I don't see, see anything illegitimate at it, about it at all. Yeah, I think I think a big part of what most of us would say on the Rothbard uh, fractional reserve issue, or just the libertarian perspective uh, on fractional reserve banking, is that it comes down to deception. So I think a lot of this whole issue also comes back to deception. Um, and if, uh, if you know when you're putting your money in the bank that it's not there if you go to ask for it, um, then you know I don't think very many of us would have a problem with fractional reserve banking. But it's well, the I would that, say that I would say if you put your money in a bank and they're giving you interest, you ought to know that they're loaning it out. And so even if you don't know, even if you don't know, it's your fault. You know, buyer be or lender beware. Put it that way, or or depositor beware. Yeah, I, well, I mean that's a that's a valid argument. I think. Uh, um, my, my retort to that, if we were trying to argue this out, would be, um, 
it kind of depends on the sophistication of your target audience, right? If you're specifically going after uh, people that um, that have been indoctrinated in a public school system to think this is exactly what they should be doing with their money and it's the safest thing in the world since they were five, um, that's you know there's 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 more to it, and I think at that point you could definitely argue. Um, yeah. sort of some in intentional taking advantage of people's ignorance, um, if not like flat out fraud. But either way, I think, I think, and maybe I'm wrong. I mean, there's definitely, you know, some potential negative side effects of fractional reserve banking that people could argue should be avoided in some way. But that seems like a bit of a stretch for a libertarian to come at it from that angle. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, uh, but I think everybody on this call probably thinks shorting is just fine. Uh, there's nothing, there's nothing innately bad about borrowing something and then paying it back. Um, and if you just stop and think about that, you know, maybe it has some side effects you don't like, but does that put you in a position to be able to put a gun to somebody's head so they can't do it? Um, but uh, again, uh, just like with fractional reserve banking, a lot of the problems are sort of, you know, not the problem with the activity in of itself, as we'll talk about, but, um, but arguably, because there's so much dumb money sloshing around in the system, there's a lot of opportunity to take advantage of people that really shouldn't be in the system in the first place. And that, that you know, muddies the waters at the very least. Yeah, it's kind yeah, of... We're going to see a lot of that. We're, we're just going to have a lot of the, the money that shouldn't have been there. It's just... I, again, from the you know, it's easier to talk to a group of libertarians about it. I mean, there's just no. I just can't see from a libertarian perspective or even a moral perspective. Like, we're going to let people buy lottery tickets. We're going to let people buy the pet rock. People are buying Charizard Pokemon cards at insane prices, and you're going to tell people they can't buy a stock they think is going to go up. It's just, it's just beyond me. Right. Yeah. So that's good. I think we're we're all on the same board. I think uh, on that. So that's good. Um, so with GameStop, you know, to, just to give a real brief idea of what happened, and if I get anything wrong or someone wants to jump in and, and maybe explain something better, go for it. But we had a uh, we had a bunch of guys on Reddit that were, you know, day traders and, you know, investing a little, little bits uh, of money here and there, and they came across a hedge fund that was shorting GameStop. This happened to coincide with someone else. Uh, was it Ryan Cohen? Was uh, was buying a bunch of shares to try to take a controlling stake in GameStop. To... Is that the CEO of Chewy.com? Yes. And um, and so it kind of coincided. They they started trying to push the price up, the redditors, in order to make this short, you know, go go in the opposite direction and 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 take this money from from the hedge fund, and uh, and it worked. And yeah, that's called a, a short squeeze, I believe, right? Or, yes. Or, yes. Or gamma squeeze or a short squeeze. Right. And uh, a lot of these redditors, since they're you know not controlling a lot of money and it's it's easy for them to do, they're on a, an app called Robinhood that lets people you know average Joe go in and start trading, um, doing things like f fractional shares of trade uh, or fractional shares of uh, shares, and. Um, kind of low barrier to entry which back in december of 2019 slappy and i had an episode about dumb money in the stock market and we brought up things like acorn and cash app and robin hood that allowed people that to you know enter into a game that they probably really didn't understand the rules on and so it's going to attract a lot of dumb money and, and get a lot of people wrecked potentially but it's a shame because the federal reserve is so awful that you can't 
maintain the value of your wealth by just holding dollars. So people were kind of forced, if you will, um, to enter into things like the stock market and other financial instruments that they wouldn't otherwise be in. And so like JW said, it creates a situation where there's a lot of dumb money. So when all this is happening, apparently there's a, 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 another company or hedge fund called Citadel that had some sort of stake in GameStop. Right, I'm sorry, uh, in Robinhood, and they basically you know, started turning the screws on Robinhood to say, hey, uh, we don't like what's going on here with this market. You need to do something about it. And so Robinhood did things. And okay, so, so can we can we can we kind of come in there and correct some of that a little yes, bit? Yes, please, so, please. So good, good part of that's right, and then there were a couple little uh, um, going off the rail. So the the um, yeah, Robinhood's this app that said, "Hey, everybody can get us. You know, everybody can have a stock brokerage account. Let's break down the barriers." So, I mean, in like you know, twenty years ago, incredibly expensive to trade stocks, really high prices, really high costs, and we've had twenty years of reducing costs and increasing access. And Robinhood is really an innovator disruptor you said it bringing in dumb money i mean look if somebody's opening a stock brokerage account with 400 dollars, you know they're certainly not uh going to cocktail parties in dc and dropping dropping checks on politicians so you call them the dumb money you can also say that it's, it's an innovation that expanded access which it certainly did now they might have made some promises they didn't stand up to this week so people were really pissed at them i would be really pissed at them uh, but there's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding as to what happened. So yeah, this this Reddit chat form, I you know I can't stand Reddit's layout, so I don't spend any time on Reddit. But you know they did exactly what you said. They identified that there was this very very large short position. So this company GameStop, which people see because it it's in the mall, people know what it is. Um, it's been around for a long time. Not doing well because people aren't going to the mall and people aren't don't need to buy a video game in a physical store if they can just download it. So been doing badly for a long time. I, you know professionally owned GameStop stock nine years ago, right? I haven't, haven't traded since, don't have a position to be clear, either personally or professionally. They, they just made a big speculative attack on the stock. A bunch of people started buying and started going up and the people who'd sold it were afraid it was gonna go up even more and started buying it back and it went up and it just kept going up. So that's completely legitimate. Some people will call it a pump and dump scheme. You can't orchestrate act like there are a thousand different people. You can do things that are illegal, but I see nothing illegal in what they did. It was just a bunch of people started buying something, thinking it would go up, and it kind of became self-fulfilling because the people who sold it tried to buy it back, and it went up more, and it just turned into a big hurting stampede of a, of a speculative attack. Lots of speculative attacks happen all the time, big and small. I had no issue with it. Um, what is Robinhood? Citadel does not have a stake in Robinhood. Citadel has various different businesses, very large, very successful firm. Um, what Citadel actually does is Citadel actually takes the orders from Robinhood, some percentage of them around half, and they actually pay Robinhood a little bit of money to be able to handle that order and take it to the exchange and execute it. And so the politicians like AOC, et cetera, think there has to be something wrong with this. You know, Bill Gurley, who's a very smart VC, sent out a thing saying, this has got to be banned. We can't let people pay to handle orders and front run them. They're not front running them. So it's, it's very complicated what they're doing, but Citadel doesn't have a stake in them. They actually pay money to Robinhood, which is one of the ways Robinhood doesn't charge its, its customers money for having accounts. They pay money to handle the orders. And then somehow, I assure you, Citadel is making money on that. I can tell you how they do, um, but they're not doing it by just blatantly stealing money from the orders or trading in front of them. It's, it's a lot more subtle than that. Um, and again, it has to do with regulation. So yeah, the stocks are going crazy up. It's still crazy up. Um, and then there was this big disruption last week, which caused everybody to be really pissed off. So we, we can go to that, but I'll cut 
cut. Do, do we know how much money the, the hedge funds have lost or stand to lose total from this uh, from the GameStop play itself? Well, I'll give, I'll give you some numbers. Stephen. So um, as of December 31st, there was around 70 million shares short. OK, and the, the whole company has only issued 60 million shares, which goes to that thing about borrowing. You borrow it, sell it, borrow it again, sell it again. There's no limit on it. Um, only 50 million of those shares are actually freely traded, aren't held by insiders who can't sell them. There's only 50 million that's really held by the true investing public, some fraction of which I would guess 30% is passive. It's like an index fund that's not going to sell it at any price. So you have a really limited float, call it 50 million shares, but probably the effective floor lower. And you had 70 million shares short. Those shares were at $18 a share. They closed at 300, over 300 on Friday. So you've got, you know, a $300 per share move, right? On, if, if nobody had covered, it would be on 70 million shares, which would be that they were down, you know, 20, $21 billion. So they're not down 21 billion, but that would be the maximum. On Jan 15th, they updated the short interest. We know as of Jan 15th, they're only 60 million shares short. Um, and then my personal belief is that the shorts have largely covered by now. They're forced to, they, they can't hold a position that large. Uh, we can get into why, but roughly if, if you were running a portfolio of a size of hundred and you were short $1 of this, you know, when it goes to $5, you have a massive, massive problem, right? If you keep holding it and it goes from $5 to 50, you just go out of business and you're going out of business pretty quickly. So they, they almost by the logic of, uh, of how they run their portfolios, they have to cover if it goes up enough and they know that and, and, you know, they're smart and aggressive, but they're not really looking to go out of business foolishly. I mean, it's bound, it's bound to fall eventually. So I, I would imagine you could short it right now, uh, thinking it's going to fall and profit off, off shorting it right now, right? It's just the size. So like I, I'd say if, if you had a million dollars in your account and you shorted a hundred thousand of it, you better be ready that if it goes to 3000, you're going to lose your million dollars. Right. Because they'll stop you out and goodbye. And you, you know, you tried to make a hundred thousand and you lost a million. So you can short it, right? but it's dangerous. I, I thought from a libertarian, and the reason I jumped in, because from a libertarian or from a outsider point of view, you had all these people chiming in saying all kinds of things. Like number one, they were cheer. I think a lot of people think that that the hedge fund guys that are shorting are bad because they're hurting GameStop, which is not true. And I don't. I, if I'm if, correct me if I'm mistaken, but you know these these uh, these Reddit traders, the Wall Street bet guys. Bidding the price up doesn't really help GameStop, right? Especially because this is probably temporary. I mean, this is not really for GameStop's interest, right? Yeah, well, I think unless the issue. I think stopped. the most. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was. Just, I think that's exactly right. And, and the, the way GameStop would would benefit would be if they sold stock to raise capital. They they have about a billion dollars of debt, and they right. can certainly use some money. So they, the board of directors, I think, um, would. would Get yelled at quite a bit by the shareholders who want to keep the squeeze going, but um, you know their duties are to the to the company. If the company needs to raise capital, it's a great deal for the company to issue stock, and I would not be surprised. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. on its way to do that. Yeah, they should strike while the iron's hot. But I mean, there's nothing wrong with short selling. It helps correct prices. I think Bob Murphy and Tom Woods had an episode yesterday or today about this. Um, uh, but you know. It, Whoever's right here, it doesn't really matter. From a, I think the big criticism was that there people are assuming, and this is what I liked about your post, your 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 tweet thread, Cal, was they were saying that uh, oh they think that um, um, Robinhood was 
was being pressured by the banks and by political players to stop the trading to hurt the to hurt the uh, the small guys. And my view as a libertarian is even if they did, they have a right to do that. I mean, unless there's a contract saying, uh, I mean, it could hurt Robinhood's reputation, but unless Robinhood contractually obligated itself to always be available to trade, and they didn't have the right to halt trading when they felt like it. Then, for the libertarian matter, it's it's their right. But from what you explained, it wasn't. They didn't even do it because they chose to. It's like they almost had to. Is that correct? Yeah. So the couple things there. One, it, it, they do not have a contract with their customers where if they wanted to stop them from trading purely to cause a certain outcome that they wanted in terms of prices, that would violate their their legal obligations as a, as a regulated broker dealer. Um, so they would not be allowed to do it just because they wanted to. Um, okay. If they're a fiduciary, they have to act uh, in the best interest of the client. But it is entirely consistent with brokers and brokers for decades, maybe probably over a century, have stopped their clients from trading when they can't support their trading. So the notion that their terms of service or that your contract meant that Robinhood couldn't stop you from buying a stock uh, is just, I mean, it's just not, it's, they're going to get, they're going to get dismissed. Um, they're not going to survive a motion to dismiss them. They're, they're, they're going nowhere with that. So, so the that, class, the class action lawsuits you think are, have no basis. So the lawsuits by the, uh, by the traders. Yeah. I haven't looked at all of them, but, but what I've seen where they're suing Robinhood, I think they all get dismissed fairly, fairly quickly. The, um, the, the thing I'd say where it's problematic is the thing you asked at the end, which is they were kind of forced and, and that's right. And what happened was this entity down in the plumbing, you know, that, that's what really the thread that I kind of explained went into this entity down in the plumbing said, Oh, game stocks at 300. If people buy it, then their money settles two days later. Like it's like, a, you know, it's like the title company effectively down in the plumbing that transfers the stock for the money and actually affects the trade. They said, well, normally, you know, in that two day period, we make the brokers put up a little bit of money of the, of the broker's own money, meaning Robinhood's own money to make sure that when, when the trade comes to settle, that everybody's there and stands up to what they bought or sold. That, that plumbing entity, effectively the title company called NSCC, it's a subsidiary of a company called BTCC, which is a private company owned by all of the Wall Street large you know, broker dealers. That entity said, oh, this stock could go anywhere. If you buy or sell this stock, you got to post 100% of the purchase immediately that day uh, of your own money, Robinhood, to support your clients. So, you know, Robinhood's got 500 million net worth. They posted a couple hundred million dollars to the clearing entity to support their clients trading. But the demands on them just at this one entity went up 10x. So it's not the whole amount of their clearing posts, but it went up 10 times just last week, just this past week. And so Robinhood, even though they had prepared for that and they had a $500 million bank line, they went and drew their $500 million bank line. But even with that, say they posted, I estimate they posted an additional $350 million last week. So you're running Robinhood. Just put, your, put yourself in the seat of the, the CEO or more likely you're the risk guy talking to the CEO. And you said, okay, well, you know, we had $50 million bucks in the bank and a $500 million credit line at the beginning of the week. We just wired $350 million out. And the, the plumbing entity changed the rules. That says we have to put our own money up for anything our clients buy in GameStop right now. So if your clients bought, if their clients would have bought more than like I estimate a couple hundred million dollars of GameStop on Thursday, 
then on Thursday night, when the plumbing title company in SEC called them up and said, wire me $600 million that your clients bought at GameStop, Robinhood went ahead. And so they would have failed as a brokerage and everybody's trades that have been executed, all the buys and sells of every client that hadn't settled would be liquidated by the effectively the title company in SEC. And that's carnage. I mean, that's about unintended consequences or externalities. That's a true shit show. So um, that, that's really what they're facing, and that's the sense in which they're forced. So, so do you think that, that they made a mistake by not being prepared, or, or or do you think they made a mistake by not communicating the explanation of why they halted trading? You know, I, I, I didn't suffer from their actions, and I didn't listen to or wasn't bought in by their promises of opening up access. So there's going to be people who are, you know, pitchforks out extremely angry with them, and I'm not really interested in telling those people to – to, you know, take their lumps and who cares if Robin Hood screwed you. I mean, I have some sympathy for them in that, you know, they run a, they run a business, they've got $500 million of debt capital to support their clients trading. You know, that didn't prove to be enough. They turned around and issued equity. You know, they raised a billion dollars overnight to be able to turn their clients back on the next day. They really mishandled the communication. The guy did not sound that's, like that's I sound I mean, right yeah. now. Yeah. The guy did not sound like I sound. Like, the guy should have paid me whatever it would have taken to get me on TV for him yesterday because he did not do a good job on Thursday. And uh, he just, you know, they got like this ego looking kid that like just looks like he's shady as all hell. And he's telling people, well, we're all going to learn about volatility now. And, and, you know, we're really sorry, but we're working on it. And we don't have a liquidity problem, but like it wasn't our decision. But it just was a total soup of nonsense. And people are absolutely, you know, they're raiding the castle. And they think they're they're driving in a Cadillac that this guy told them he built, and it turns out they're in a Pinto, and Wall Street exploded them. So like people are angry, and I think they should be angry. Well, let me put it this way: Do you think that going forward they're going to have more capitalization for this kind of eventuality? Yeah, they raised a billion dollars. Yeah, but I mean, so so like in a month or two months, they're probably not going to have this happen again, right? Yeah, that's people that are pissed, right? So just just to jump in here real quick, I mean, I'm not saying that every time somebody's pissed and has a good reason to be pissed, there's a legal case to be made. But in this case, I think it might be an indication that there is, right? Why why are the why is everybody so upset and so convinced that they lost money? Is it because they were stupid and they should have done something else? Or maybe it's because Robinhood gave them a very strong impression that they had first class access to the market. And that if they had money in their account, they could buy a stock when it was going up. And I, that's one of the things that I think got Kinsella and I talking about it is I think Robinhood, had they been honest with users, and this is where a lot of people that build software like this get in trouble, had they said up front when you're signing up, not buried in the terms of service somewhere, but up front, Hey, by the way, if there's ever a stock that's a real rocket ship, you're not going to be able to buy it, right? You know, there's certain circumstances that you should know about right now. And, and this is one of them where a stock is doing really, really well. You won't be able to buy it through a platform. You should have no expectation of that. If that was up in up front, then I think, one, I would agree that there's no legal case um, and that the lawsuits are going to be thrown out. And, and two, I would say they don't have anything to be upset about um, because they got what they thought they were signing up for. Uh, but I, you know, that's clearly not the case. Um, and further, I think if they had done that, if they had a big, hey, by the way, you're not going to be able to participate in any rocket ships, you know, enjoy your trading until it gets really good. 
um, I think that would have caused a competitor to arrive much sooner um, because everybody loves Robinhood, right? Or everybody did love Robinhood until two weeks ago. So if you were trying to build a brokerage that had low fees and actually provided a great experience and you tried to raise money from a VC, they'd say, what are you going to do that Robinhood's not doing, right? Robinhood already got this. But if Robinhood had a big skull and crossbones when you signed up, all you'd have to do is a startup is say, we're going to do Robinhood, but we're making these systemic changes, right? We're going to be more capitalized. We're going to, uh, you know, have whatever else about our plumbing is going to be different. So we don't have to show the skull and crossbones. They would have thrown money at you. But it seems like from what Cal is saying that they didn't do it under pressure from uh, the hedge funds or the government or something like that. That might be true. I, I mean, I'm, I'm skeptical of anything that goes on in this space because, I mean, we're kind of talking about this like in the theoretical space of like guys down at the market, you know, buying and selling oranges and making loans and it's all very, you know, simple and cute. But the, the backdrop of this is totally different, right? The backdrop, as we all know, is all of these people have been forced to become investors and you know they're truck drivers they're farmers they're just regular people they're people that work at mcdonald's they've been forced to put all their money into 401ks to avoid inflation right and they've been educated that that's the right thing to do and then it goes off to all of this nasty network of scumbags and criminals that do all kinds of stuff that we wouldn't be comfortable with um and you know look underlying all of that is that initial thing right so I don't I don't want to like point at every broker dealer and say they're a scumbag, but you know it's sort of like the guy that takes the crack and hands it to the next guy. Like maybe what he's doing isn't necessarily bad. He doesn't even know what it is. Maybe he's just shipping packages or something. But they're all profiting from this really nasty, corrupt system. And a lot of the people that are involved in this trade, there is a Robin, uh, you know, a David versus Goliath sort of, you know, steal from the rich, give to the poor thing going on here because. A lot of these people are really right. They're, they're not right probably 80% or more about what exactly the mechanisms are that are screwing them over. But they are right that they're constantly and forever screwed over. And this does seem like a place where they may have caught, you know, caught the guys with their pants down. And, you know, as a Bitcoin guy, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not dumping my Bitcoin and throwing it into this, this thing. But I'm very sympathetic to what these guys are trying to do and the motivation behind it. Um, and I'm also, as a software guy, very disgusted by an app that has, uh, in my opinion, given all of their users a completely different expectation from reality. Um, so those are the, I don't know, those, those are the kind of the, the things that I think color the situation a lot. Um, as far as what is actually going to happen, you know, who, who knows? It's going to be whoever uses the right politician's palms, right? Um, well, I mean, but, if, it, if, it hurt, if it hurts their reputation, who are they going to turn to? Is, are there, is there a competitor they can turn to for, for cheap trades at low, vol, at low, low price, at low, low amounts, low volume? Well, there, there will be now. I'm sure that there will be several. Um, the there guy is. running for governor yeah. in California right now has just uh, funded a startup, um, uh, Chamath. I can't remember how to pronounce his last name. Um, but he's, he's saying basically, hey, this is exactly why I didn't invest in Robinhood because they were systemically broken and they were gonna make a bunch of implied promises to their users and I don't wanna be part of that and points funding something else. So it's not, I'm not saying that people won't have access to the market because these guys will get replaced or whatever. Um, but 
the you know, at the end of the day, this is this is still gross. I think it's very reasonable for people to be outraged and pissed off, even if they're not right, you know, outraged and pissed off for the exactly the right reason, because, you know, they never are. Yeah. So just a couple things on, on Robin Hood, because I think I think that's very fair. And I, and I similarly think people have every right to be outraged. I think it's also just, you know, often we operate mentally in narratives like Robin Hood's the disruptor. They're not cozied up with Jamie Dimon on the weekend. Right. These are tech guys who wrote an app and, and brought in a bunch of stuff and they disrupted Wall Street prior to this. And the way they disrupted it mainly was they said, you can open an account any size, you don't have to pay us, and we're not going to charge you anything to trade. And they and they did that for a variety of reasons, but in doing that, they forced a lot of the brokerages. There already are competitors. Webull is one that mainly people are leaving Robinhood and going to Webull. And their CEO communicated a whole hell of a lot better. But it's just important to see, like, Robinhood definitely huge fell down on their customers on Thursday. People have every right to be angry. And I think the like, hey, this isn't what you promised me, uh, argument has, has some merit. But, you know, they are fundamentally trying to be the innovator and they did actually do some stuff that's going to be socially productive in terms of breaking down barriers. Um, they also had, you know, to some level prepared for this. And this isn't something that's nefarious that they did because, you know, Citadel called them or something or, you know, the Wall Street powers that be got together and called them up and said, we'll let you in the club if you screw the mob that's running the speculative attack. That, that is not what happened here. This is a technical it might problem. not be what happened, but, but let, let me yeah. push back on that a little bit, because this idea that these are just, you know, the, the, the narrative out of Silicon Valley is, oh, it's just two guys in a garage, right? The reality is it's two guys in a garage and then somebody shows up with a billion dollars. And so you have this, you have this very tight network. Um, there's probably five or six major VCs that set the tone for all of the other ones. And you know, if there's a startup that's actually making money or whatever, yeah, you're going to get competition and you're going to be able to go with it. But there's a reason that we've seen absurd things come out of Silicon Valley. Like how many how many uh, scooter startups have you seen recently? Right. That's not because they're doing fundamental analysis and they're all you know completely independent thinkers. These guys are terrible. They suck. They don't outperform you know, the market most of the time, they're just like, you know, it, it's the same story with like, don't, don't give your money to a VC by an index fund because your average broker, uh, you know, financial advisor is such an idiot. He can't even beat random chance, right? That same thing applies to the VCs in Silicon Valley. Um, and what really happens is there's four or five like tastemakers that everybody tries to follow, right? So you have like somebody will do a, a scooter startup and then everybody wants to do a scooter startup. It's, it's not because there's any fundamental technology shift or, you know, something really interesting happening there. And those guys are cozied up with Jamie Dimon and all these guys. So I'm not saying that that's what happened, right? I think it's more likely given the speed of everything that happened my gut feel is it was just they built the business in a way that wasn't super you know super kosher to deliver what everybody expected and this was kind of a stress test right like they should have stress tested their business um if they were you know being reasonable about it it seems like they didn't and they got a real life stress test and fell over but at the same time it wouldn't surprise me in the least if we found out later that there was a phone call from an investor or somebody else saying hey this is getting out of hand we got to put the brakes on this for a minute and and they use that as an excuse so you know maybe they didn't do it but i don't think you have to be a complete nut and certainly if i'm if i'm on robin hood right i'm finally freaking winning 
right? Uh, for all the wrong reasons, right? This is these guys are not making smart investment decisions. They're you know they're they haven't seen like oh this thing's super undervalued. Um, although you know. The, the, if they do see an opportunity for a short squeeze, it's hard to call that dumb money. Um, and if they think that they can raise the capital to, to kick these guys in the nuts, I, I wouldn't call them dumb money. But all of that game is, is you know, iffy in my mind. Um, but, you know, if you're at the console and you're finally winning and you go to hit the button, uh, I, I'm very sympathetic with thinking, okay, the guys that I'm fighting with on the other side of the screen are no more. Like if you go out on LinkedIn, they're no more than one degree away. Right. Uh, so it's it wouldn't surprise me with that kind of money slashing around um, to have it. You know, it, it's let's say it's very convenient at the very least. Yeah. So well, can, you know, can, can I really quick give the, the, the Wall Street perspective of that? Because like the there's so much of that I agree with. And then the thing where I just it's just a little different thing is like, yeah, there's Uber and there's Lyft. And, and there might be some aspect. Of, I understand a little bit of what you said about, you know, there's tastemakers and they're all competing, but like the taxi companies against Uber. I'm telling you, JP Morgan love the fact that Robinhood fell down. Goldman Sachs love the fact that Robinhood fell down. Right, right. right. Big, big Wall Street was fucking cackling when Robinhood guys couldn't buy because Robinhood couldn't make the clearing deposit. Okay, so yeah. it's just yeah. you know internal. No, I, I agree. I agree. There's multiple yeah. levels to this. There's multiple levels to this sort of these all these sort of schemes that are going on, and I totally agree that like if you're going to compare, I don't know, Charles Schwab to Robinhood, Robinhood's probably the good guy. Uh, but fortunately, we're at a point, and you know, this is this reflects like the internet age, right? Like the bad guy, the good guys become the bad guys really quickly because our expectations shift. And, uh, and hopefully, you know, hopefully this is all on the road to something we'll talk about later, which is people realizing that if they keep, if they keep peeling the layers back of corruption, right, they got from getting charged crazy fees when they make a trade to, hey, we should be able to get, you know, much cheaper, reasonable fees, even if we're small, because we can pull together, which is sort of the Robinhood thing. Uh, but soon they're going to figure out, like, you know, there's people that have access to zero or negative interest rate loans, right? There's people that, that if they're politically connected enough, you could never short squeeze them because they have an unlimited tap, right? You're not going to short squeeze the Federal Reserve or anybody that's tightly connected to the Federal Reserve. So there, there is multiple layers to this. And I, I totally agree that, uh, you know, that six months ago, if we we're having this conversation, it was Charles Schwab versus Robin Hood. I'd be like, oh man, Robin Hood's killing them. I'm super happy these guys exist and they're doing a great job. I'm a hey. I'm reminded a little bit of December 2017 when uh, the Bitcoin split happened, and I was I saw $9,000 Bitcoin cash flipping by, and I was desperately trying to dump it, but you couldn't get in. You know, it was like a blip. Sometimes you just can't you can't take advantage of these things that you see. It's frustrating. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I, you know, I mean, for the guys that that missed out on the trend, whatever, they're they're probably going to get wrecked. You know, soon enough. Um, and uh, and the, you know the the they're, they're they're playing in a casino. The house is going to win eventually. I'm convinced they really need to opt out of the casino and defund the whole system by buying Bitcoin. But um, but uh, you know, so I'm not that heartbroken for the guys that are going to lose on this. Um, I don't think it's like purely good versus evil by any means. Uh, but I am super sympathetic to wanting to see the. Uh, Wanting to, and it's not really Robin Hood, right? But I want us to be kicked in the nuts. 
guys. It is the guys that profited in 2008 and got bailed out, and now are the ones that are, you know, playing poor. Um, but I, I, but people. I mean, the, but it wasn't only the hedge funds that were short. I mean, there were probably regular guys that were shorting GameStop shares too, who got hurt by this too. Just regular individuals, right? So. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's nothing wrong with shorting the stock. I mean, Murphy had a point. And I think he's got some posts about uh, the, the the social benefits of shorting and all this as price correction and things like that. So if you think about it, so you had these guys shorting the GameStop, and which is probably a valuable thing to do, but they overplayed their hand. There was too many of them, and then since some of these um, Wall Street bet guys noticed it, and then they played them at their own game. So I guess economically, the question would be, what social function did they? What what use did they perform by taking the money from the short sellers? I guess yeah. they they, they disciplined them for. Right? It's like that. Yeah. That's assuming again. That's like oh, we're just buying and selling on the stock exchange. Like you want wheat? I've got some cash. Let's do a deal, right? Now let's, let's I'll, I'll deliver that wheat in the future. Now we're doing futures. That's not what what's happening, right? Like we we're in Soviet Russia. We're not in the United States of America. This whole entire system is. Uh, I mean, who's the most important customer for any of these companies right now? It's not the guy getting on the airplane, having to look at, uh, you know, two dudes kissing uh, on a poster when he's walking by with his two-year-old. We're in this world because the only customer that matters, especially right now, is the downturns approaching, is the Federal Reserve, right? So it's a, it's very much a socialist system. So to to say, hey, they're they're you know ensuring they're providing this really useful function maybe they are man but i i assume that anybody that's doing anything in the stock market right now is just profiting off of this underlying corruption which is causing you know which is basically forcing a bunch of regular people to be dumb money in the system so that they can police it so i have such a negative like starting point for this. <laughs> yeah i mean that, that's a very um totalitarian view of the federal reserve so i mean just just to disclose my own Using the Federal Reserve, I mean, I, I, I would end the, if you made me give me the chance, I would end the Federal Reserve system. I don't think it serves society well. Uh, I don't think it's a good idea. I would end, I would privatize the Federal Reserve and eventually just let it crash of its own, not being backed by the government. So I'm not for the Federal Reserve, just to be clear. But I, I wonder if you, you kind of had to ask yourself a question, like if they promise two percent inflation and they do it for twenty years, that's not enough for you. If they do it for forty years, it's enough. If we have four hundred years of two percent inflation. Uh, from the Federal Reserve, is that enough? Were you regarded as a real money? Uh, I'll let Kinsella answer that because I think he'll he'll be more gentle. <laughs> well, I, I guess I don't what's I don't understand the question. I mean, the Federal Reserve is uh, I agree with Weatherman that's corrupting. Uh, I still think we have a functioning stock market to some degree, despite the corruption. I mean, I think short selling does a, still performs a function, and I think that the that the uh, that the the uh, the short squeeze guys performed a function too. I just don't quite understand what function they performed. They corrected they corrected an overcorrection or something like that. Yeah, that's I was just going to say in a normal world that would be the case, right? If somebody is shorting a stock, that means that they're they're essentially pushing the price down. They're sending a signal to the market that the the, the stock is overvalued. And that is a useful entrepreneurial activity. It tells the whole world, hey, this company is not as valuable as you think. And if right. they're right, they get rewarded for that because right. they'll, they'll be able to sell the stock later. You know, they'll be able to borrow the stock back later. And, right. So th they're doing the entrepreneurial speculation of Mises. Right. Um, yeah. And that's one of the most important things that we can do uh, to keep, you, keep each other alive. But that that's like 
again, that's like in isolation. What are these guys really doing? They're giving Janet Yellen, you know, how much money over the last short period of time. They know that they can take risks, right? So when they're shorting, let's just, if, if nothing else, just this one thing shows how corrupt this activity is. When they're shorting, they know that if they screw up too much, right, they're, they've already been like clearly demonstrated that they're too big to fail. So there's at least a massive moral hazard in that activity that doesn't apply to these little guys, right? These little guys know they're not getting bailed out by the Federal Reserve. They know their money is being printed out from under them and not at 2%. They know when they buy a house in 10 years, it's not going to have gone up 2% a year. It's going to have gone up 8 to 16%. That's the real inflation rate that, that these people have been living, that we're all living under, right? And if you believe the CPI, um, when they, have, they can't even put hot dogs in the CPI anymore, they have to put like they're, they're going to put mealworms in it soon or something, right? I mean, this, this, if, if oh, you think wow. about so, so that's very interesting. So the, I'll just give you a, a totally different view of the CPI, which is CPI massively overstates inflation because my cell phone that costs whatever, three times more than my cell phone cost in 2002 when I first got a cell phone, like it's not three times better of a cell phone. Like this is like a yeah, trillion dollars. 2002. The, no, the notion that we have 2% inflation is economists will claim it's correct. You know, there's these foreign caste people who think that it's understated like you're saying. I mean, I actually think we live under significant deflation if we are honest about the marginal value to us. What are power windows worth in my car? Not the price of power windows. I don't All right, man, that's, that, that's a fair point. I would, I would say instead of taking a look and saying, okay, let's, because what, what you just said is, assume all the productive capacity of the world, all the entrepreneurial effort, all of the new creations, the new innovations, everything I've done in my career, everything every of these 7,000 or 7 billion other people have done in their careers to make cheaper stuff for your kids. Take all of that, burn it, then burn an additional 2% and do that every single year. And then you're happy. Like that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is, all right, Let's take your kid that's six right now and say, all right, when they're 22, they're going to want to buy a house and they're going to want to buy a house in their parents' neighborhood. They're going to want to buy a car that, you know, has airbags or whatever. They're going to want to, they're going to want to have a certain lifestyle. If you take all of those things and put it into a CPI, I think you're going to get a totally different result. And I don't think it's a coincidence that they don't do that. Um, I, I agree. I agree good. with you. Yeah. yeah, I agree with you. I think I think Safedina Moose had a good podcast the other day where he was talking about how, yeah, I think the CPI is grossly uh, understates inflation. So, I mean, the stock market itself is inflation, right? Even but even, even Bitcoin it, price in a sense is percent Again, you're still taking every innovation that every human on earth has created over the last year. You're burning that plus two percent, right? Because everything should get cheaper. So even if that's all they're doing is just like destroying everything I've ever tried to accomplish in my life so that my kids have cheaper stuff, plus 2%, pretty harsh. If I invent cold fusion and the Federal Reserve screws it up and have hyperinflation, we still have cold fusion, okay? They're not destroying it to be hard and clear. That's completely false. You know that's false. They're not destroying it. Yeah, yeah. So let, me, let me rephrase They're debasing, they're debasing the money such that your purchasing power doesn't benefit from those increases. That's what they're doing, right? They're earning seniorage revenue and they're debasing the money such that they reverse the effect of a natural deflation. We would naturally have deflation if we had a fixed currency. They're just reversing a natural deflation by debasing the money instead of taxing us, okay? So they just, 
one way or another, the government's going to eat its thing, and we can try to make it smaller. It's just one way they eat is by debasement. But yeah. it's a two percent debasement, not a. They didn't destroy so, your 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 work. So let me let me put it a different way. Let's say that I come up with some invention. Um, some coding on electrical wires, right? And as a result of that coding on electrical wires, uh, the cost of electricity drops by 10% for everybody globally, right? Or everybody in the United States, we'll just keep it simple. And that's the only thing that changes, right? Like, and this, is a, this is a vacuum, right? It's the only thing that happened this year. Everybody would uh, experience deflation um, of, you know, let's, they obviously spend more than just on electricity but let's just say all they do is buy electricity. They would experience a 10% deflation. And what the Federal Reserve is gonna do is they're gonna say, hey, that's a great little innovation there. Let me print enough money to where people continue to spend the same amount of electricity plus 2%. So now my kids, my neighbors, everybody that I know that I was hoping by being a great inventor, we're gonna be able to enjoy a better quality of life. They're not going to, they're actually going to spend a little bit more. And, and you know, maybe that's fine. Now, where does that money go? tie it back to this, that money goes to the offers of people like Citadel, right? The politically connected folks that are supposedly doing everything for our benefit. But if you still believe that, everything after everything you've seen with COVID, you know, everything from the freaking Vietnam War till now, uh, you know, you're probably hopeless. But um, it goes into their, their palms and they decide what gets done with it. Now, you might say, oh, they spend it on defense. They spend it for our benefit. They spend it on this and that. But some of that money definitely goes to bail out people like Citadel when they make bad calls. And that's why people are pissed. So they don't have that huge, sophisticated roundabout like uh, the Federal Reserve is screwing me. I, I haven't even seen the Federal Reserve mentioned much by what these Wall Street uh, bets guys. But they are right that at least they've identified at least a logo, right? Uh, who knows who's running the company now compared to who was running in 2008, right? But at least they've got a logo that they can say, those guys screwed us. And this is an opportunity to kick them in the nuts. And even though they're probably wrong, they're probably going to be losing. I can't help but cheer them on. You know, even the Robin Hood, you know, false promises aside. Okay. Um, hey, let me uh, let me ask a question of Cal. Can I ask a question of Cal real quick? So, how can you say there's average price deflation when? Yeah, power windows are cheaper and airbags are cheaper and cell phones are cheaper. But, I mean, what's really important to people? Like, do you think our kids are going to be able to live in a nice house in a nice, safe neighborhood and retire early in 20 years? I mean, it's getting harder. I, I don't think they're going to be able to retire early, but I think they're going to be able to live in a nice, safe house. And I think, that, you know, uh, it, you know, as long as we don't go too centralized and we have decentralized create jobs, figure it out. Human labor is incredibly valuable. I have some concerns about obsolescence of some type of, of, you know, of uneducated labor, but largely not. Largely, I think, uh, you know, people find a way to make their lot in life better. They find jobs, they create businesses. Um, and, and really the main threat to, to it not being a better standard of living in the future is if we, if we try to rig it and run it from the center, and there's a lot of that. I mean, we spend what, 35% of of the economy through government, through politics. So yeah, I think it's a major threat. It's why I'm a committed libertarian. Um, but uh, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's always easy to be a pessimist. But I mean, you look at the 400 year trend line, I think that's a more powerful thing than, um, than my very logical concerns, like how the hell can this work?
Well, I, I'm not being a pessimist. I think that technology keeps improving, and that is what's keeping this system afloat because the government is doing everything they can to destroy it, right? And to para- I mean, I think Weatherman's right. They keep inflating on top of whatever productivity gains that we have. Yeah, I have, I have real concerns about the government crushing innovation. Uh, I think the story here was one of regulation. You look at why why this happened, you know, and people don't understand it. But the the the, the regulatory heart of this thing, which was part of I think what people were, were reacting to when I when I talked about the plumbing, was you know the, the fact that in Dodd Frank we didn't want to have too big to fail. That led to an unintended consequence here. That's the reason Robinhood had to face this huge call. And they couldn't just let their customers trade. It's because of a government rule that said that they couldn't use, they could not use their customers' cash to pre-settle a trade. If you had ten thousand oh, wow. dollars in, in Robinhood, they couldn't have taken that money and said, "What do you mean two days? I'll give you the money right now. Let me buy GameStop." It was illegal for them to do that. If Robinhood did that, they broke the law, right? It would be criminal breaking the law using customer funds for their funds. So, like the start, the heart of this, I think the irony is we're going to see AOC doing her like amazing, you know, asking questions, crushing people, thinking Congress. And the actual answer to her is, my Lord, the thing is, you wanted a law that made it illegal for Robinhood to serve their customer. Yeah, I mean, I, I would still kick a little sand on them and say they knew about this rule and they could have communicated, you know, whatever. But that is super interesting. I didn't realize that the reason that, because that was, that was one of the things I was thinking as you we were talking about it. Like if somebody has, I thought you were maybe talking about puts, but you're saying if somebody even had a hundred dollars in their account of just cash, that wasn't that wasn't good enough uh, for the, the the broker dealer or whatever as collateral to allow Robinhood to make that trade. So they actually had to transfer cash, which because we don't we don't have a free market uh, uh, banking system requires like three days to settle, and that means that there's going to be a three day lag anytime that they end up a little bit undercapitalized. Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's even, it's even a little worse. It's that there was an entity that Robinhood was a customer. So the clearing entity, like the title company in real estate called NSCC, and they changed the rules. So it's, it, I'm sorry, they applied the rules that existed that gave them a certain amount of discretion to, in situations like this to increase. They applied those rules and they said to Robinhood, yeah, your customers can do whatever you want to let them do, but whoever buys GameStop today, you Robinhood out of your money, not with their money, that's illegal. You Robinhood out of your money are going to post every dollar of GameStop they bought at the end of the day. And if you don't have it, we'll liquidate all your customers. And they can apply this rule arbitrarily. It's based on their professional judgment, let's say. It's not arbitrary is the wrong word. Discretion is the right word. The, the rule went out for public comment. It's with the SEC. It's with most of these things. Like one of the things about these regulations is, you know, people think they're closed door things. I mean, you can go read hundreds of pages of public comment, rules. And no, no, the regulation, I, I understand what you're saying about the regulation, but it sounds like they had some discretion in how they applied it. They didn't have yeah. to tell Rob. Yeah, that's right. So there's a regular way formula, which is like calc this, subtract this, do this, and it comes up with a number. That number is usually about 2% of what Robinhood's customers would buy. So if Robinhood's customers bought a billion dollars of stock, normally Robinhood's got to put up like 20 bucks, okay? And so that's the thing where I say Robinhood had $500 million. If you normally post 2% of what your customers buy, like you're like, they should have been prepared. I'm trying to give you the scale of this, right? Yeah, they yeah, yeah. They have $500 million. They normally have to post 2% of it, right? So what that means is they were prepared for their customers to buy $25 billion of stuff. That's pretty prepared. Right. They changed the rules. They said, well, if you buy GameStop or AMC, you post 100% Robinhood. Okay, I think I think we've gotten to the bottom of the uh, 
of the scheme then. Or, you know, we may have found the bad guys. Maybe it's not as complicated as, as I thought coming into this. Because if what you're telling me, just to recap, is that Robinhood was prepared for $25 billion in sales of the stock. And they, they, whether you want to say they applied the rule or they changed the rule or whatever, they, there was an expectation that 2% was enough. They used their discretion, let's say, to jack that from 2% to 100%. And it's not reasonable for Robinhood to have expected that they were going to do that. Is that right? Well, and, yes, correct. That's that's all correct. And I would just add that in Robinhood's agreements also, they would say, well, in extraordinary circumstances like that, you can always tell people, well, then you can't buy that, which is what they did. Right. So, so when you say it's deep in the terms of service, there's it's to me, I have some sympathy for that perspective, which is which is why I was saying it before. Yeah, I think that that actually makes sense to have something like that deep in the terms of service. Right. You like every unexpected outcome you can't have blasting in, in in the user's face as they sign up my understanding coming into this conversation was that they should have expected this like had they reasonably i think i said had they reasonably stress tested the business they would know that they they were undercapitalized. and i think what you're saying is had they reasonably stress tested the business they may have gone to six percent uh, required reserves or eight percent but they never would have expected it to go to a hundred percent which is an unusual thing that the regulators did to them, uh, at, you know, in, in real time. Yeah, that's correct. So does anyone think that, uh, I mean, you're talking about too big to fail. I mean, these, these hedge funds are not going to get bailed out though, right? They did lose billions or they will have lost billions by the end of this and they're not going to get bailed out, right? The hedge funds are not going to get bailed out. Also, to be clear, I mean, I'm absolutely disgusted by the bailout. Tony's very involved. The, the hedge funds did not get bailed out. You could say the system got bailed out, and therefore they got bailed out because all those fuckers got bailed out. That's fine. But you can't be like, oh, no, Citadel got bailed out. Citadel got its ass handed to it and did not get bailed out. Okay. The, the hedge funds are not the – they might take their call. When the hedge funds are paying fees to J.P. Morgan, they'll take the call, try to help them. Sure, we love you. We love you. When they start to look like a threat to J.P. Morgan, they liquidate them. Right? Like they're little guys compared to the real players. Um, and so it just, I don't know, it's just a slightly different, if you're inside the system, who has the real power and when, it would seem like maybe, you know, one of the richest people in the country who runs a huge hedge fund would be able to call some shots. Not when he looks like a threat to the system, they put him right out of business. Yeah, there's always, there's always another yeah. layer. <laughs> Yeah, that that I'm I'm glad this this is perfect because my question was was it reasonable for Robinhood? So I mean, my question got answered already. Um, we're coming up on about an hour. I had one more question um, to to present to everybody. Uh, so there's now this movement going around that everyone's uh, you know doing the Wall Street bet kind of thing and think that now they have the uh, the game plan on how to append Wall Street and these hedge funds and and for the little guy to fight back. So what do you think about that um, going forward, this uh, this apparent movement of, hey, let's everyone start crashing into these markets and uh, trying to trying to disrupt things like that? Because my, my initial thing was like, man, they got a lot of money. They've got good connections. They are going to pivot and adjust, and they're not going to get caught with their pants down. And I think <laughs> all these people trying to do this stuff, they're just going to get wrecked. Yeah, I mean, it, so it sounds – I'll chime in. It sounds to me like they, this may have already happened. It sounds like 
you know, it, it definitely was helpful that you could only sell Robinhood and you couldn't buy, or you could only sell stock and you couldn't buy it, right, on Robinhood and a couple of other platforms. And I think for anybody that was getting beat up really badly, even a pause is super helpful. It allows them to, you know, get more capital together, put a better game plan together, whatever. So it sounds like it may, they may have done exactly what needed to happen, right? I mean, now I would say, if I was guessing, the phone call didn't go from, the uh, the billionaires getting beat up to Robinhood. It went from the billionaires getting beat up to the regulators that called Robinhood and said, "Hey, you know that two percent? Go ahead and change that to a hundred. So, yeah, I think I don't think this is going to be an effective strategy either way. And I, I I said at the beginning, I don't really, I definitely don't understand all the mechanics of this nearly as well as as Cal does. Um, but one way or another, I know the system's corrupt enough to where uh, it's. It's going to remain pretty corrupt until uh, until these guys figure out. I mean, my hope is that the uh, the Wall Street bets guys they realize that they're you know they're playing and they're never going to win against the house and they decide to opt out. That does have a fixed supply, right? There's all kinds of room for, in my mind, for there just to suddenly be a whole bunch more shares of. Uh, uh, of GameStop, right? That, that GameStop never issued, or you know, there's probably a million different ways to sort of like Cal was saying, like you short it and then you take the cash and you short it again. In a normal world, how many times would you, as a lender, let somebody do that? Probably not a lot, unless you really wanted to make that investment yourself. But there's probably a million of those things in the system. But Bitcoin is simple. There's only going to be 21 million of them. Uh, you know, the, the institutional investors like it. They want to own it too. Buy it before they can get any of it. And uh, that seems like a much more effective route for me. Yeah, just quickly, my, my two cents on the where we're at in terms of the speculative attack. I mean, there's a whole history of these kind of things, right? So if you're, go read Kendallberger's book or something, there's great histories of manias and speculative frenzies every which way. So I think this has got some legs in terms of people trying this with a bunch of things. People made so much money. It was so spectacular. Everybody's talking about it. It's going to have some legs. They're not going to be successful. So some people will make money, but it's the people. To me, the, the analogy I keep using is a multi-level marketing team. Most people have some relative who one time or another, God help them, you know, took part in some multi-level marketing scheme. The That's what this is. If you're in early, you can make a ton of money. If you're in late, be prepared to lose what you put in. And so if people are in now, the question is, is it too early or too late? If it's too early or too late, you know, uh, I, I would uh, I would have huge bets because I would know. Nobody knows if it's too early or too late, but that's what you're betting on. You are not investing in the sense that anybody thinks any of these things are worth it. You're just, you're betting that you're going to sell to somebody else when it's higher. And so you'll hear arguments, just like you do with a multi-level marketing scheme that, the hedge funds are trapped and they're going to be forced to buy it back and we can all win. That is not true. It is knowably false that everybody can all win. Okay. The group might be able to win a little bit collectively from the people who have to cover, but everybody cannot win. And I don't like when people say that, like we have a plan, we're all going to win, hold on forever. If you hold on forever to GameStop, you are not going to win. So, I mean, you can play the game. I, people buy lottery tickets. Like a government monopoly issuing lottery tickets, right? People pay for entertainment. People buy branded clothing. I can tell people not to buy branded clothing. I'm a libertarian. It's crazy. You can buy these stocks and play the game, but realize what you're playing, right? Like, don't think for a second that you're like winning the easy money. That's just most people have enough sense to know that's crazy. But 
um, be like, is it too late? Can I get in? Yeah, but view it as entertainment money. Please, please, people don't put don't put savings in this that you need. That that's just that's like going betting on on black or God help you double zero. Stefan, did you have any anything to add there? No, I just I, I'm I'm worried about regulation coming from this. Of course, uh, the wrong kind of regulation. Um, I would assume still I, I I would think I would think that GameStop is going to have an emergency fund uh, stock issuance right to try to get some cash and that's going to drive the price down. So right now I would think shorting it might be a good idea. Not get not to give advice and I don't know if I'm going to do it, but I would I would short the shares right now other than anything else. At the, at the current price, if it's high. Gotcha. So I, uh, I, I think we'll wrap it up here. I want to really thank all three of you for coming on. This was, uh, this was exactly what I was hoping for and more. Just kind of sit back and let you guys kind of hammer some stuff out, um, especially leveraging Cal's expertise here because I really, really think that it's so important to try to just – begin to understand what's going on with this situation it's uh there's some technical stuff in here then unless you've been in the industry or or really have some some inside knowledge on it you're just that's just inside baseball the rest or of you us can just run your enough, mouth so. as a strong opinion uh, yeah yeah just go on anyone can log into twitter and <laughs> but uh if uh if you guys want to uh you know give any any sort of plugs or or where we can find you and uh, it'll be in the show notes page mcflugel.com slash 236 but cal we'll start no, with no, you I'm, I'm the first podcast enjoyed the conversation and uh um hope the hope the libertarians make some progress in making the society better awesome jw ah can't unmute for some reason uh yeah, um, you can follow me um, at JWWeatherman underscore. And uh, Cal, what's your Twitter handle, man? Because this was a super helpful conversation. Like, I, I, I have to admit, I came into this thinking Robin Hood was, uh, was to blame, and now I'm, I'm thinking that I was wrong. So I really appreciate you jumping on and uh, giving us some free education. Uh, so say your Twitter handle so people can follow Yeah, sure, sure. It's uh, at Krauk Trebor. So that's um, K R. A L C T R E B O R at Kraut Trebor on Twitter. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, NS Kinsella pretty much everywhere. All right. Awesome. Yeah, thank you all. Slappy uh, This was really fun. Enjoyed it, guys. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Yeah. Good to see you guys. All right, and we are back. Let's uh, close this episode out. We uh, yeah. we heard we heard everybody's uh, Twitter handles on there, and they will each be on the show notes page, mcflugel.com slash 236. Also, remember to check out our sponsor, libertymugs.com. Buy some awesome libertarian and Bitcoin-themed mugs and T-shirts. Just put up some uh, Yeti Cold merchandise, T-shirt and hoodie on there. It's uh, J.W. Weatherman's project, which he was on the episode uh, on a, a previous episode with his son Will, talking about that. I recently did finally set up a Yeti Cold Level Three storage, and uh, beautiful it's, man, it's pretty slick. Yeah, it's, that's uh, pretty cool. Awesome. I feel a lot better about my my Bitcoin security. Also, um, I don't know if it was in the recording, but Cal mentioned that. Oh, I see you guys are kind of into Bitcoin. I'm not really into it yet, and J.W. was able to to 
to pitch uh, 10 hours of Bitcoin.com to mention that. And that will also be in the show notes page. And hopefully I actually finish doing that tonight. Um, I want to get that out on a podcast format, which is, uh, I think, really help getting that information out there. So uh, that would be awesome because it's a lot easier to listen to a podcast in the car than it is to have YouTube up or, you know. Yeah, it kind of limits you. Yep. So, yeah, um, I think that's uh, that's everything. Oh, I forgot to – well, you're going to hear it now if you're listening to it early, but uh, I'm not going to wait till. I don't know if you noticed, but I said January 31st. Are we going to get this out? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to release it tonight. I think. Yeah, let's get it out. I think it's a, you know, it's an important event and it's timely. get this out sooner than later. So if, uh, if you're not used to uh, seeing the Rollins Slappy show on a Sunday night, you're going to get a nice little early present. Yeah. So if you're in the Northeast, uh, enjoying the snow and listening to the Rollins Slappy show. There you go. Yeah, um, yeah. Do we want a success story? Sorry. That. But you're forgetting tractors, and we're not forgetting success stories, too, are we? No. Well, since you brought it up, you give us one. Okay. Um, all right. Yeah, I do have one, actually. Um, so we're planning on selling our house, and uh, the dishwasher broke recently. And, you know, when someone buys a house, a lot of times they're going to redo the kitchen the way they want it anyway. And so, did it, you know, trying to fix up a lot of things, trying to keep the budget down on – on, on different things, right? You don't want to like put way more money than you need to in a house that you're going to sell and the new people are going to change it all around anyway, but it needs to look presentable. Uh, so we need a working dishwasher and we were able to get a brand new one, um, really inexpensive off of uh, Facebook. This guy, I, I don't know how he gets them, but he actually delivered it to the house. It was all cash. <laughs> um but it was brand new. He advertises on the Facebook marketplace, I guess it's called. I don't know. My wife found it. Um, it we had to install it and, you know, he didn't do that. But it was probably, I mean, if, if we got it um, from a Home Depot, one of the big stores, it would the same model would have cost $200 more or $150 more. Um, so it worked out. It was nice, uh, that he had, he has a shop. He does have a shop. I don't know if it fell off a truck or not, but he does have a business. So I think it's legit. I don't know where he got it from, but, um, but it works. It was brand new and, uh, we got a dishwasher and so we don't have to try to sell the house and explain, well, the dishwasher broke, you know, so there's a dishwasher in there. Um, yeah. And now you can use the box that it came in as your new house. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's that's the plan because um, right. it is a pretty big box. Uh, we're just going to have to buy probably two or three more appliances so I have enough room for the kids. But um, I actually just bought a pair of hiking boots, so you can have that box. Maybe oh, a little, little. Yeah, they're smaller. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Great. Now I just got to find a corner to set it up on, and we're good to go. Awesome. So, all right, everyone. Remember, uh, show notes page mcflugel.com slash two three six. If you're not following uh, any of Cal, JW, or Stefan Kinsella, uh, I highly re- recommend that you do. So go check that out. And, uh, oh, also, that's what I also wanted to say. On the show notes page, we'll also have Cal's uh, tweet thread that you might have heard us mention because that had uh, a lot of the information we are talking about. And also, uh, I mentioned early in the episode that we had a, a, an episode where we talked about the uh, warning about things like Robin Hood and and uh 
and these apps that have some positives to them, like Cal mentioned, but also some some real bad negatives that might that you know would 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 put people into tough spots because they're just kind of ignorant about how these things work. Um, Basically, Raul is saying we predicted all this. Yes, back in December of 2019. So send send us money for that too. Because and keep that, listening. That'd be a big point for being right. Yes. On that. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. We will catch you next week. Peace.